teaching for tomorrow in the climate of today. Inspiring educators globally. Never stop learning. Never stop growing. The best teachers teach from the heart. Welcome to Powerful Pedagogy. Powerful, powerful, Hello and welcome to another episode of the Powerful Pedagogy. I am so excited to have here with me today Dana Abraham. She is like the guru of sensory processing challenges that occur or that sort of exhibit themselves in young children. And Dana, I am so excited to have you here on The Powerful Pedagogy. I am excited to be here. Thank you so much. Awesome. I was first introduced to your work, obviously, through Sally with Wonderled Teaching. And I'm excited to just sort of learn more and share more about your work with our audience. So can you, to get started, can you give us a little bit of like the backstory? How did you come about sort of making sensory processing and helping families, helping teachers? Like, how did this become your life's work? Yeah, so I kind of got started really early on. My brother was a bi- was bipolar. We didn't know at the time growing up. And so I kind of was the one that got the hits and got his expl- was the, the end of his explosive behavior. So okay. I had to learn how to kind of ride out the storms pretty early in life. And then when I became an educator, my favorite kids were the ones that the other teachers saw as too much or not enough. The ones that the teachers really struggled with and they had a paper trail behind them by the time, you know, they got to even pre-K five, you know, or, you know, the second year of school. And so they were just always the ones that I was drawn to. So when I became a parent, I thought I got this gig figured out. Like I am going to be the world's best parent. Yeah, that did not yep. happen. And instead, <laughs> I was gifted an amazing kiddo who was like, I'm going to poke holes in everything you think you know about education and child development and behavior and discipline and all those things. And so I had a lot to learn. And by the time he was seven, so he was in second grade, he had already been kicked out of preschool, in trouble in kinder suspended in first and then suspended more days than he was in school in second. And so there was this like really big event where he, I got called to school again, another meltdown and I get to the school and the whole staff is there, the counselors, the Mm. teachers, the principal, everyone's there. And they've even called the police on my son. And so I get pulled into the principal's office and she says to me, she says, you have two options. You can either, let this officer take him into custody or you can take him home and don't bring him back until you figure out what's wrong with him. And it was pretty much in that moment that I was like, okay, this, this has to change. Something has to change. We, he deserves so much more. We were all just like throwing our hands up. The teachers, everyone was like, it just came out of nowhere. I'm like, no, couldn't have come out of nowhere. Let's figure out what's going on here so that we can help him. Um, Because at this time he just really, he was starting to really hate himself and he was starting to be really resentful of the world around him at seven. And I knew that it was a really bad path to head down at seven. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I think like you, I too, as a teacher, am drawn to those children. They tend to be like my ones. And I feel like a lot of that was because I identified as that child growing up. Mm -hmm. Like I lived in the principal's office, you know, Mm -hmm. and I remember, you know, back in the day, not to give away my age, but, you know, being that I, I came into his office so much, you know, we developed a relationship and he never made me feel like I was bad. You know, Mm -hmm. and I think there's something to be said to a child's self-esteem when they are sort of going through things or emoting or exhibiting, you know, sort of oppositional behaviors, you know, whether it's at home or in the classroom. Like, how do you keep their self-esteem intact? Yeah. And I think that that's that was such a big piece for me is like, you know, I've seen now I've worked with thousands and thousands of parents around the world. But at the time, seeing him at three, at five, at seven, say, I wish I was dead or I hate myself. Mm. You know, I wish I wasn't like this. Why can't I be like all the other kids? He didn't want to be explosive. He didn't want to have fits. He didn't want to have meltdowns. He didn't want to be defiant. Like he wanted to fit in and he just couldn't figure out how. And, and so I think it's really important for us as parents, as teachers to help our kids understand why they do what they do, help them have that awareness, but also help them realize that, you know, I think a lot about Hulk and, you know, he, with Hulk, there's the, I don't know if you're a Marvel fan. Of course, I know. Yes, yes. There's so, stages, and, right? There's stages. Stage, yeah. yeah. So with Hulk, though, like in the the last, you know, the, the big final movie, they're sitting at the cafe. And Hulk is sitting there and he's got Bruce Banner's face on. But it's Hulk. And he looks ridiculous because it's Hulk, but with still Bruce Banner's head. And everyone's looking at him funny. And he was like, what? I finally realized that the Hulk is not a disease to get rid of. Mm. I have to embrace the Hulk because he's part of who I am. And it was like, yes, aha moment. Like that is what I believe so wholeheartedly is that it's not about getting rid of the things that we don't like about our kids or that don't fit the mold about our kids, but it's helping them understand that that is the other side of the coin to who they are. And how do we hone those 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 urges, those needs, those desires, so that they can use that for good. So yes. my kids' explosions were part of his passion. They were part of his intense likes for things and dislikes for things. And so how do we get him to be able to share his intensity, to share his love of things, to share his like one track, like, you know, in his engineering, I want to fix it brain. How right. do we help him use that without the need of kicking, hitting, biting, fighting. Yeah. And in, in throughout my years, I've been teaching preschool now for over 20 years. I've had to send a child home for biting, you know, just because it may have been school policy or, you know, and I've had to mediate, and this is what I wanted you to talk on. I've had to mediate between the two families, you know, the child who bites Mm -hmm. and the child who gets bitten about the incident, right? And reassuring the family of the child that got bitten that, you know, like, listen, you know, we, not that it won't happen again, but like, listen, like we're on it, but also letting the family know of the child that is doing the biting, like, you know, listen, we know that he is not a bad child. Like, listen, it happens. There's also a part of it that's also developmentally appropriate. You know what I mean? Like it's part of them sort of discovering them, you know, just Mm -hmm. sort of boundaries and 
pain and you know what yeah, hurts and all that. At three and four, they don't have a lot of times the language to say I don't like that or stop yeah. or get away from my toy. And the thing that they do have control over is their teeth or their little mm-hmm. fingers, right? Yeah. Those three-year-olds can really pinch and it hurts when they pinch, right? But yeah. you know, they do the grabbing or they do the biting. And it really is just like I don't have any words to say what I'm really frustrated about right now. And so I'm just going to grab on, whether with my mouth or whether with my hands, because I don't have the words to describe this. And I think you're so right. Like it is, it is, there's so much about it that's age appropriate. Yes. And I think the more we can normalize some of these behaviors instead of, I have parents who come to me and their kids are three or even two. And they're like, my kid is so violent and they're going to turn into, you know, a mass murderer. And I'm like, they are two and they are just trying to figure out their body. They are just trying to figure out their emotions and things like that. And you talked about like what led me into sensory processing. And that was actually kind of the gateway into understanding more about kids and their behavior. And I think, you know, it was one of the first things I really started rediscovering was this need for oral input, this need for touch, this need for Uh, sound or for movement or body pressure. And so you're going to get a kid who's going to hit or kick or push or lean or nudge. Especially when they feel unregulated, right? When they're dysregulated, when they feel unsafe. But they also might just have that innate need to do those things and they don't have a way to to get that need met in any other way. So that was the Mm. first way that I learned about behavior. And then I started learning about how anxiety affects behavior and how the need for safety affects behavior and the need for connection affects behavior and attachment and connection, all those things. And so, and lack of skills. And so now it's a lot more holistic. I don't just talk about sensory processing, but I could talk about it all day long because- I think it's such a missing piece in so much education, both for teachers and for parents. We don't talk about the the needs of ourselves and how we Mm. interpret the world through our senses. We talk about the five senses as a cute, like, let's have some sensory activities. Let's have a sensory bin. Let's have some, you know, a sensory swing. But we don't really talk about even you and I as adults, we interpret our world and interact with our world with all eight of our senses, not just sight and smell and taste and, you know, touch we, and hearing. It's so much more than that. And, and so I think that that's an, it plays such an important role in being compassionate and understanding towards our kids and ourselves. Right. Well, you talk about that there being like eight senses, Yes. Yes. Will you share a little bit more about that? Yeah. So we talked about the, the five that most of us know about. And it's not just like, oh, these are the things that help us see or help us feel. But it really is like the way that our body is taking in information. And so when you're taking in information, just just with those five even, when you're taking in information with your eyes and then you're taking in information with your ears, with your hands, with your smell, with your mouth, All of that is kind of going into a bucket and Mm -hmm. it can overflow really easily, especially if let's say you are someone who receives lots of information. You don't have like a limiter on your ears. And so you're able to take in all the sounds around you. Well, that's going to fill your bucket really, really fast. It's going to cause you to be more dysregulated. It's going to cause you to lash out, to 
be crying or upset. I mean, think about as a teacher, as a parent, how often we get like noised out or touched out. Mm -hmm. And it's that overload of that bucket of getting too much sensory input. And we're just like, okay, I need to go in a dark room and I need to talk to nobody. right? Right. And it's the same for our kids. They just don't have the words for it. So the other three senses though, that are so important that most people don't even know about the first one is vestibular. So that's your sense of movement. Right. And so that's like, I I need to move. I need to touch. You'll have kids that rock, that Mm -hmm. fidget, that don't want to sit on the carpet. They need to stand on the carpet. You'll have kids that need to pace while you're having like a group reading. And that's their vestibular need. They have a strong need for vestibular input. The next one is proprioceptive. So this is the best way I like to describe it is body awareness. Now it really is like your joints and, and pressure and things like that. But the easiest way to describe it is your body awareness, how, where you are in space. Yes. And so these will be your leaners, your pushers, your knocking um, down the toys, just sort of just that child that's very unaware of like yes, the environment. These are your, yeah. my middle child, he's now, he's turning 16 tomorrow. And okay. this was him. Like he was like a bulldozer everywhere he went, you know, bull in a china cabinet, right? Like he just was like, I am knocking everything over. Like he just was like yeah. that as a kid. <laughs> and it's funny because I saw him as he grew up and he was very much like through life. He's very much been this, like he broke toys. He, you know, and not on purpose, but he just, he's hard on things. <laughs> he's just really, really because of that push and that pressure. The way that I help parents understand this or teachers understand this is when you wake up in the middle of the night, and you have to make it to the bathroom, yeah. right? And it's pitch black. Can you make it to the bathroom? Most of us can because we have that sense of space. We know where the bed is. We know where the wall is. We know, right? But sometimes we feel really, really disoriented. Off. Yeah, disoriented, exactly. Right? This is also your ability to like walk a straight line. Yeah. I can't walk a straight line. <laughs> and so, you know, which shows kind of where my proprioceptive sense is. And then the last one is so key and vital in regulating. Mm -hmm. So key and vital in interpreting and understanding our world. And that's our interoceptive sense. Mm. So This is your internal cues. This is your body saying you're hungry, you're hot, you're tired, you're mad, you're sad, you're upset. Like, and if you have a low interoceptive sense, like you're not as receptive, then you're not going to hear those cues. So my son doesn't hear that he's tired that he's hungry, that he's upset. And he's 18 years old and he still does not hear the cues inside. So if a child is being touched and they're not hearing the cue that they're feeling upset, it's going to look like they're snapping. Yeah. Yeah. But really it's been building up as they're being bumped, as they're being touched, as the noise is getting loud. And you might even notice, especially at three and four, as they're still learning to potty on their own and that's still new for them, you may notice that when they have to go to the bathroom, their behavior increases mm-hmm. and it becomes worse and they, they get fidgety or they start even lashing out at people. And, and once they go to the bathroom, it like relieves a valve, right? right? And yes. so now they're calmer and they're chill and they can kind of sit and hang out with you. And a lot of that is that introceptive sense. Wow. You know, one of the things that, that sort of light bulbed in my head when you, when you said that and something I tried to teach families is that our sensory inputs, like the stuff that we get, it produce feelings, right? Whether they're 
good feelings. It feels good, you know, uncomfortable feelings, you know, sometimes anger. And so it makes so much more sense that the eight senses, right, where you are in space, how you're interpreting things, how you're, if you're feeling disoriented or not, produce feelings, right? And then, like you said, like whether it's a young child or an or older, you know, adult, like it all comes into play with how they are expressing what they are feeling at the moment. I mean, if you think about like a three or four year old who can't kind of stay in their own personal space, yeah, and it doesn't matter how many carpet squares you give them, how nope. many circles you every, give yeah, them, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter because it's not a skill they're lacking. Yeah. It's that sense of space, right? Right, And so they don't actually know where they are in space. So this is the same kid that when they're walking in line, they're going to flat tire the kids in front of them, not on purpose, but the kids are going to get mad because he's always on top of them. He's always touching or she's always bumping into me. Right. And, and so the more we can help the whole class be aware that sometimes we aren't aware of where our body is, what our body's doing. And so you can tell a friend, you can say, you're in my space. Right. right? And realize they're not doing it because they want to hurt you. They're doing it because maybe, maybe they want to play and don't know how to ask, but maybe they're doing it and don't even know it. Yep. Yep. It's true. And, and so that, I think you hit that on the head. I think as an educator, not only is it, imp- is it important to work with those children who are experiencing this, but it's even more important to teach the rest of their community how to, to interact with them successfully, yes. right? 100%. And so when I, you know, when I see that child like bogarting the line, you know, yeah. I usually tell them like, you know, look around, look at people's faces. <laughs> You know, I, you know, I don't think they're happy with, you know, you skipping, you know, 14 of them, you know, like, and so, you know, and even just like having them develop the language to sort of help sort of facilitate that child's behavior, yes. right? Yeah. And so that that child becomes more accepted and it becomes more of a, a, a group. Like they say, it takes a village. Yep. It, we become more of a village. And I think yeah. as an educator, like that is the culture of compassion that I also like to create in the classroom. 100%. And I, I talk about in the book that's coming out, I talk about these different stages. And the fifth stage is, we talk about it with families, but it works in the classroom, but it's the family success plan. Mm. And so that's this idea of creating an environment where everyone can thrive, just like what you were just talking about. And the understanding piece in this plan is called unique profiles. Mm. And so it's about really understanding each person's likes and dislikes and understanding the way their brain works and understanding their sensory preferences and understanding their skills and their struggles and superpowers. And as a family, that helps you navigate life and helps you set up plans that work for everyone. But in the classroom, and a teacher might be thinking, I have 30 kids, right? How am I going to help everyone know each other? And You can do that through small activities, you know, like their sign-ins where they put their pictures and then you talk about it, but not just doing it once saying like, oh, remember the other day when we did that sign-in of do you, would you rather be hugged or would you rather a high five, right? Right, Well, that means that some people like feeling squeezed and some people don't like being touched, Yeah, right? And so let's remember that Susie said she does not like being touched. 
Right. And that it's like important can, to ask, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. It's so a huge you thing. can then expand that out and just make it part of your conversation of how to understand all of our differences. And the more that you make that part of the conversation, the more they'll start paying attention to it. So my daughter at five, my, we always say my daughter is the poster child for all of this because her, <laughs> her oldest brother is the one that really struggled. And okay. so she lived and breathed this like development of this framework and roadmap. And so at five, it was a birthday and she was like, mom, I don't want to invite Elijah, my oldest, to my birthday. And I was just devastated. I was like, we've worked so hard. Yeah. Like now she doesn't want him at his birth, her birthday. And I said, like stomached my own thoughts. And I was like, okay, can you tell me why? And she goes, well, because he's really sensitive to sound and people and lights and smells. And I want to go to Chuck E. Cheese and I know it's really loud there. And I don't think he'd have a lot of fun. Mm, okay. And I was like, okay, five, five years old. And I was like, okay, I totally hear you on that. What if there was a way to go to Chuck E. Cheese early in the morning? Because they do have like these sensory Sundays. So I was like, I wonder if we could call and see if we could do, you know, a morning. So, but that would mean that your friends would have to come at like eight in the morning, you know, wow. or 10 okay. in the morning. Right. And I don't know who's going to have pizza and ice cream at 10 in the morning. So it might mean you don't get as many friends to come to your birthday. She was like, but if it meant Elijah was going to get to go, then let's do it. Right. So we called. We made the plan. It was the best birthday party we've ever had. They had the lights, like only half the lights on. Really? They didn't use the music. Okay. They didn't have the characters. They is, that some, have is that something that families can request from certain yes. places? Yes. Okay. Yes. Let's put that out there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, and you never know, but more and more places are becoming sensory aware. One of my uh, community members just posted that Walmart is having sensory Saturday or sensory shopping days. I don't okay. know what the days are, but there's times where you can come and they'll have the lights turned down. They'll have limited people. They won't have the music on and you can come and do your back to school shopping wow. with less sensory input. Wow. So that didn't exist 10 years ago when I no. started this work. No. And you know, now I go to airports and there's sensory rooms in the airports. I go to, you know, amusement parks and they hand out sensory bags. Like all that didn't exist 10 years ago. And so I'm just so excited that we know more. Now it's just how do we help the world even understand not just about sensory, because I think a lot of people mm -hmm. think sensory is related just to kids who have autism or just to kids who um, have a diagnosis. And really it's all kids. Yeah. But then how do we help them realize that there's so many other aspects like safety and feeling safe in their environment and connection and feeling that sense of belonging, even with just one person or skills? Because so often children are labeled as bad or mischievous. Yeah. And once they get that, that tag at three, they carry that all the way through life unless okay. someone removes it for them. Yeah. It's harder and harder to remove it the older they get. Yeah. And then I try to limit and be very mindful of how often I'm saying their name. Yeah. Just little things I think that, you know, as an educator, you can do in the classroom. I want to circle back to as a parent, when the school was calling you up and, and telling you like, oh, you know, your child 
did this or your child did that. Is there anything or any more support or any sort of awareness that we as educators can have when we are dealing with families, any sort of sensitivities Mm. or things that we could think about when we're sort of making those calls? Yeah. I've kind of seen it on both sides. And so this isn't like a blame the educator, you know, (laughs) podcast. No, but this is, this is a learning opportunity. So I've seen it on both sides. And I think that for both the educators, the administrators, the school systems, and the parents, we can set aside blame and shame. Okay. We can set aside the guilt that we might have missed something because that's being taken into the conversation. We can set aside the blame or the shame for the other person. Even if you're not purposely doing it, there's innately sometimes this like, well, if the parent had just done this, well, if the parent had just done that, yeah, right? And if we can remove that and we can realize that everyone coming to the table is doing the absolute best with what they've been given. It might not be the best, you know, best practices. It might not be what's best for the child right now. But everyone coming to the table wants what's best for the kid, and they're doing the best with what they've been given. And most of the people coming to the table are acting out of, a lot of times, acting out of fear. Because they're worried that, well, if this kid keeps doing this thing, it's going to ripple to the rest of the class. That's Mm -hmm. like the educator's Mm -hmm. fear. And then the parent's fear is, well, if my kid gets, you know, in trouble for this, they're going to get ostracized. They're going to get labeled. They're going to like all these things. So let me try to fix this. And we jump into trying to make solutions. And a lot of times we leave the kids out of the problem, out of the discussion, and we leave their problem solving out of it when we could come together collaboratively as a team and really focus on one challenge at a time and work together. Yeah. I think, you know, a part of the other thing that I think teachers are thinking about is school is supposed to be a safe space, right? When you drop off your child, you want to pick them up and yeah, they're the little day-to-day things, but you know, hopefully you don't want any harm to come to them. So I think that is part of the challenge that you do face. Is there anything looking back that you wish the teachers would have done differently? So a lot of times the teachers were the ones that were doing amazing things for the kids. It was the administration that was struggling. And the administration a lot of times would get this idea that like, well, he should know better. And he has to learn a lesson. I heard that a lot. Like, he should know better. He has to learn a lesson. Right. And consequences, the, right? Do yes. You, do, you, do, you feel, do you feel the consequences work? No, no I do not. Okay. Okay. Um, I feel like, especially for these kids, right? Okay. I think that, I think we believe that they work because for the majority of kids, it doesn't matter, right? right. They're, they're going to, no matter what you do, it's going to work. And so, but for these extra challenging kids, all it does is put a bigger wedge if, you know, between you and it doesn't actually teach the skills. So the key is to get to the root of why is this actually happening and how can we solve that problem? And so you talked about school being a safe place. I talk about in what I've discovered is that there are four parts that, you know, to solve any challenge, you need Mm -hmm. four elements, kind of like baking a cake. You need, you know, your own mindset mm-hmm. has to be in a really safe place and a really like open and receiving place. Then you need connection yeah. at some level. There has to be trust and connection. There has to be understanding of what's really going on under the surface, not assumptions, but real true understanding. And then there has to be an empowerment of all parties 
everyone has to feel like they're a part of the solution and they have to be able to feel like their needs are being met. So it's very real that yeah. the teacher and the parent of the other children want there to be a safe place. That's their concern. The concern of the other parent is, well, my kid obviously doesn't feel like this is a safe place, even if it's a perceived danger, right. because they're acting out. Right. So how do we make this a safe place for him? Because if we do, then it's going to be a safe place for everyone. right? And so how can we proactively look at what's under the surface, what's causing these behaviors? How can we proactively look at the behavior as a sign that something's you know, that that child's struggling. And then how can we proactively create a space that empowers that child and the other children when this happens? So when my son would have meltdowns at home, mm -hmm. we had a game plan. My older, my younger son would take my daughter into the basement and they would go and they would play games and they would watch TV. And it was kind of like no rules time. Like they got to kind of eat snacks and do whatever they wanted. And then my oldest, we would have the way to be there with him. And a lot of times it's like, let's remove the child who's struggling. But a lot of times that's the child that needs the most support. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so being able to have a plan when a child in our classroom is struggling, what can we do and create a plan together as a classroom and say, mm -hmm. oh, we can go to the centers on the other side of the room. We can be sure to not use, you know, like we can kind of move to the other side of the room and let the teacher help with this child. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. And then having a plan ahead of time of where can this child go? Is there a spot in the room? Is there a spot in, you know, right outside the room, is there a spot where this child can decompress? Right. And I'm not talking about like isolation rooms. Those, those are really hard for kids. Yeah. So my son spent a lot of time in white rooms with white walls and, and, Love. you know, locks on the doors. And okay. all that did was just escalate because he felt so alone. Of and course. so, and, and unsafe. Yeah. yeah, he, he just didn't feel, he didn't feel seen and connected. And so, you know, getting him to a safe place is important, but mm. still staying with him is the other importance, even if it's at arm's length or even if it's across the room, lowering your body, sitting down and saying, you know, putting pillows between you, whatever needs to happen okay. and keeping the other children safe is still important. So I'm not saying allow it and do any of that. And then out of the moment, creating those proactive plans of, okay, this went well, this didn't go well. What are we going to tweak? Right. How can we fix this? Right. So I'll give you an example. It's from high school. It's really random. Okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's not random, but it's high school. So it's like way the opposite end of the, of the spectrum. But my son, he just graduated high school, the one that I was talking about at, at seven. So mm -hmm. he did make it. We blew him over the finish line. He did make it. <laughs> but he started a new high school here. We made a move and he started a new high school. And the very first day at a brand new high school in a brand new town, he got in a fight and he jumps in the car and he's like, get out of here, get out of here. Like, you know, and I was like, uh, this doesn't sound right. So like we drove around, I went to the principal's office. I was like, something happened. I don't know what happened. So he starts telling the story. One of the tools that I teach is called a behavior spiral, where you spiral out everything that happened. And he's been doing this his whole life now. So he got a piece of paper and he spiraled out everything that happened mm -hmm. and all the events that led up to him getting in this fight. 
And so he got sent home and he was home for the next day because there was an altercation. And so it was not punishment though. It was, you're going to stay home while we figure out what happened. Mm -hmm. And while we figure out a plan for when you come back, I don't have a problem with that. That's very different than a suspension to learn, you know, because at his old schools, they would suspend him and we come back right to the same thing. It was nothing different when we'd come back. And so during this time, the principal gathered all the information and she goes, it's exactly what your son said. It is word for word, bite by bite. This is what happened. So basically what had happened is he had had this buildup, first day of school, anxieties, all that. He made it through the whole day, totally fine. He's walking down the hall at the end of the day and some kids are throwing pencils. And and so they walk by some teachers and the teacher's like, who's throwing pencils? My son has zero social like graces, I don't know, like expectations. Like he doesn't know what's the norm. And so, you know, and he's a junior in high school at this time and he says, well, those boys, they were doing it, right? Yeah. And so those boys get in trouble. And so he stays and talks with the teacher. He leaves the school. Those boys waited for him outside the school. Mm, okay. And they said to my son, boy, don't you know, you know, snitches get stitches. Yeah. yeah. And just hearing that, my son was like, <gasps> like so scared. So yeah. he picks up a chair to protect himself. And then the kid says, I wish you would hit me with that chair. <laughs> and so my son literally does exactly what people tell him to do. Yeah. And so he like taps the guy with the chair, throws the chair down and starts to try to run away because he realized like he snapped out of it at that point. And then the kids, it was the whole football team kind of jumped on top of him and started beating him up. Oh my goodness. Okay. It's terrible. So. But it's all, it's all, all understand. I know where it all came from, yeah. right? And I'm not excusing my son. I'm not blaming the other kids. But what was powerful is the principal, one, listen to my son. Because the other kids said that he was saying words that were enticing violence, mm-hmm. which didn't happen. And then that he, like, started it all, which didn't happen. And so she listened to my son instead of assuming And then the second thing is she made a plan so that it wouldn't happen again. And the plan was we're going to meet with once, once this kid comes back, we're going to meet on a weekly basis with this other kid. So we can start to create a ground basis of friendship or at least a connection or relationship. And then the other thing is you're not going to exit the building where all the other kids do. Because it's too overwhelming wow. for you. Okay. We're going to find another okay. exit and another entrance. So tomorrow when you come to school, enter through this, exit through this, and you don't have to interact with any other children at entrance and exit time. I think that can work with younger children too. I'm already Absolutely. thinking like right. in hindsight, like a, a situation. Yeah. You know, I had a situation where, you know, I had a young child who wasn't as verbal and his way of initiating play was hitting and pinching and biting, but he was targeting this one child. And mm-hmm. so the child he was sort of very focused on, the, his parents were like, what am I going to do? Like, can you keep him away from our child? Like, you know, they were really getting upset and it was a really hard situation to mediate. But Mm -hmm. I think in hindsight, like maybe having a a social, like a, just a play group with just them too, like sort of honoring what that 
the child that was sort of acting out needed. Like, I mm-hmm. see that you want to get to know him better. And I, you know, here are some strategies. And Let's do it what, with facilitated, with right, a human right. there so that you can be successful with exactly. an adult there. I think that's Absolutely. huge. And, and for and children even, with sensory, like giving them yeah. their own, like, do you want to come in through another entrance or exit that is, you know, less crowded? Yeah. And, and really honoring those transitions. And so when I say that, like for my son, there were some great things that the teachers were doing. One of the teachers knew that he really got along with his younger brother's kindergarten teacher. Mm -hmm. So he would go down and, and partly because his younger brother was in the class. So he would go down to kindergarten and he would help the class. And the principal then took away that support saying, well, that's not fair to that teacher. She's not his teacher. Because she felt it was a reward, right? Some sort of. She was like, it's not fair to, you're rewarding his behavior. And it's not fair to the other teacher to give her another kid to watch. And it was like, but she wanted to do this. And now you took that support away. Lunchtime, recess time can be super overstimulating for kids. And so instead of all kids go outside, all kids go to recess, all kids do this, it's okay, maybe you go out five minutes earlier, or maybe you go out five minutes later. So you're avoiding that transition period. Or maybe you stay out five minutes later with the teacher assistant to get that last little bit out. Absolutely. And then walk in. Yeah, making it a choice. I always, you know, and I'm really very, like, I try to be aware, like, when I do have a child that's like, I don't want to go out. I don't want to, I'll stay here with you, you know, because I tend to take you know, yeah. some of my, my, my lunchtime. And I love that. And I'm like, okay, you don't have to go out. You know what I mean? Like, you, you, yeah, you're good. So I think listening to that is huge. A lot of administration has that policy, like three strikes. Mm-hmm. Like if you bite three times, if you hit three times, like we have to send their child home. What I understand, like, you know, maybe a play group or whatever, I'm, tr- I'm trying to like really like sort of speak to admin here. Like yeah. what is a better way to honor all parties I think it's, involved. I think it's a an education. I think it's problem solving together instead of just saying like, okay, let's come up with the strategies. I could give you 10 strategies right now. Yeah. But it really is going to be an individualized basis. Okay. And so it's, you know, in the book, I lay out five key plans. And what we're talking about a lot in this is ahead of the moment and uh, family success plans or classroom success plans, right. um, which is creating that environment, creating routines and systems, creating personal boundaries. And being proactive versus being proactive, reactive. Yes. Sort of reactive, all those things. But you still need a plan for while things are bad, right? Mm. And so, that three strikes you're out policy. If you've got a kid who's biting, guess what's going to happen again? They're going to bite again, yeah. right? If they've bit once, there's it's most likely that that is their go-to strategy right now. And so what can you do to like when it happens that you know, like, okay, you know, or maybe that they're playing, they're, they always have someone near them when they're playing in that situation, right? In a situation where they're biting. So if it's the biting typically happens on the playground, well, let's keep someone near him on the playground. See, I think that's also part of the challenge. And I'm sure, you know, as an educator, not having enough, you know, sometimes, you know, some, yes, I have two, eight, you know, associate teachers that help me. So yes, we can have somebody shadow a child, but sometimes that's not always possible. Right. right? Yeah. And I hear that. And again, that's like, but it's how quickly can we go through these steps of like, 
Step number one is that ride the storm plan. It's going to happen. So what are we going to do when it happens? Okay. Right. And I think a lot of times we try to create a plan for the kid. Okay. And we don't think about creating a plan for the other kids. And so mm, okay. actually saying, what is the in the moment plan for the other kids? So if, if we can recognize the signs, right. right, that this might happen, if he starts going towards you, what can you do? You can push backwards, right? Yes, right. And you can say, you know, stop or stop or right. whatever it is. But teaching them to recognize that maybe there's a grunt before the bite. Maybe there's a grab of a toy before the bite. Yeah. If the other child is not a biter, if the other child is not struggling, they're going to be way more receptive to the tools, to the strategies, to the preemptive work that you're doing than the one who's struggling the most. Yeah. Yeah. So the more that we can like really go at it from the other side while we're trying to figure out the rest and try to figure out where's this coming from? What are the signs? What is under the surface? What is he trying to communicate? What is he trying to say? What is she trying to say? Right. It doesn't matter which yeah. gender, but yeah. like just what is really going on here and how can we problem solve and bringing, you know, it doesn't have to be both sets together, but bringing, making sure that you're collaborating even, you know, separately and saying, okay, what can we do to help your child feel safe? What are some plans, the one that's getting bit, yeah. what are some plans that we can work on with you? And you're going to have to educate the parents because they don't know either. They're going to say, remove the kid. Right. And and I just, the thing that I want to say to an administrator, to, you know, to the other parents even, is eventually those kids run out of a place to go. Wow. And I've seen it because my son was that kid. They run out of a place to go. And they truly believe they don't fit anywhere. Mm. And it's heartbreaking to watch. It is. And you have the opportunity as the administrator to say, they always have a place here. Yeah. We will figure it out. We will collaborate. We will problem solve. And educating the, the other parents that this is developmental developmentally appropriate. You already shared that. Yeah. And we want to keep your kids safe. I hear your concerns. So what are some plans we can work on to help your kid be able to say no, or I don't want to play with you before right. the kid ever comes up. I'm sorry. I don't want to play today. Right. Teaching the other children self-advocacy sort of self-defense yes. Yes. mechanisms. Yes. Yeah. So I feel like, you know, the this has been an amazing conversation. So, and just to bring it all home your book calm the chaos yes is 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 talks all about this right yes, 100% from survival to thriving so it talks about worst case scenarios um, it doesn't gloss over any challenging situation at all and then it walks through exactly step by step how to create these plans at each of the stages and how to adapt it to your unique child wow and so, like, I guess, where can people, will you tell people, like, how can listeners learn more about your program? I know you can probably order the book on Amazon. So if, yeah. so listen, like, if you are an educator and you want to learn more, if you're a parent going through it, like, please tap into Dana's wisdom. I mean, just this conversation has been so powerful. 
Oh, thank you. So you can go to calmthechaosbook.com. You can download a free chapter to check it out. And then you can also order your book right there. And we've got some special goodies for you. You can also grab the book anywhere that books are sold. And if any administrators here and, you know, wants to gift the books to your team or to your, to the teachers and is feeling like, man, I would love for Dana to come speak. Like I can definitely do that. So just reach out to help at calmthechaosframework.com and any of my team members can help navigate that and we can come and even if it's just over Zoom and we can chat. No, that would be huge. I think that is a huge resource. And so, and they can also find you at your website, Lemon Lime Adventures, right? Yes. Yeah. That's the blog where kind of everything lives. And so, but if you go and you get the free chapter, you'll be in our world, you'll be getting emails. So you'll, you'll find all about us when you do that. Oh my gosh. Dana, thank you so much for just sharing your, your story and just your generosity in, just in terms of your work to our community of educators and parents and our children who are the, like, just the most important and the most valuable resource that we have. Thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Powerful, powerful, powerful. Powerful, powerful, powerful.